Welcome to Linux Link Radio by TimeSys, the podcast for embedded Linux developers. Hi, this is Gene Sally with TimeSys. Uh, welcome to Linux Link Radio. Uh, we're doing one of our interview episodes, and I'm very fortunate to have with me uh, Rob Landley. He's a uh, self-described Linux embedded Linux geek, not just not just Linux geek, but embedded Linux geek. And well, uh, general Linux geek too. Yeah. <laughs> so he's he's taking about uh, taking some of her time out of the uh, out of his out of his day, and um, we're going to talk to him about some of the projects he's working on. Uh, just bribed like me with Diet Mountain Dew. Yeah, we did. Um, it, it did. It took an extra case, I think. Mm-hmm. It was an extra case, and it had to be delivered cold. And I know there were temperature requirements as well. And no, and I'll drink it warm. It, so you were saying? Well, I mean, we chilled it for nothing. Well, I appreciate that. Okay, good, good. So you know, we interviewed Thomas Gleixner a couple weeks ago, and mm-hmm. so sort of the same light. Did you? Okay. So I, I guess one of the things we wanted to, to talk about is and is. You know, how did you end up in embedded Linux, uh, or embedded systems in general? Well, basically, I've been trying to simplify stuff and optimize stuff, mm-hmm. because I have a knack for breaking things. And once you've debugged your way through five unnecessary layers of stuff, you tend to develop a real urge to rip things out that you don't actually need and aren't actually using. And... This sort of leads you naturally to a simpler and simpler system. Over the years, having removed everything that I could I could afford to do without on servers, for example, because mm-hmm. that way I don't break it, and also security. If you're securing a system, you want to rip out everything that could potentially be exploited. You don't want anything mm-hmm. on there that shouldn't be on there. Um I wound up working for a company called WebOffice a few years ago that Uh was my first real playing around with Linux from scratch actually happened at WebOffice. Before Mm -hmm. that, I'd started with Red Hat systems and stripping them down by, you know, RPM remove this thing, RPM remove that thing. Wow, the remove script for that actually broke. Well, let me start deleting stuff by hand. Uh, eventually, I got interested in building systems up by cherry picking executables to make servers. Mm-hmm. To make you know, mm-hmm. can I can I fit something on a bootable floppy, or can I, you know, I, I have this old five megabyte hard drive lying around. This was many years ago. Yeah, it's probably brick size too, right? Uh, <laughs> five five megabyte. and a quarter. Five and a quarter inch. One pound per megabyte. Kind of I way. have no idea, yeah. but. Just making, back before Linksys shipped things, making mm-hmm. masquerading firewalls for friends. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, what can I fit on here? And you know, this repurpose this old 386 they had lying in a closet. Uh-huh. And I got into building things from source because mm-hmm. teaching the, the Red Hat executables I was cherry-picking not to do things like PAM was sometimes a little on the interesting side, but uh, the uh, the boot disk how-to was actually my my first introduction to what are the minimal things that you actually need to build a system. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to WebOffice, you know, they were also starting from a Red Hat system, and I went, you know, maybe building up from the bottom is better than trying to strip down from the top from a security perspective, because mm-hmm. I don't know what half this stuff does, and it takes a huge amount of time to learn what these things do so I can feel safe throwing it away. Yes. And I was spending all my time making sure I didn't need that. Mm-hmm. And so it, that naturally led to, okay, start at the bottom and work my way up. Mm-hmm. And 
my first my first computer years and years ago, I started on a Commodore sixty four, three eight nine eleven basic bytes free. So a, a system that actually you know this won't boot in less than sixty four megs. I know it's possible to do better. I know mm-hmm. for a fact it's possible to do better. And things like, you know, statically linking Hello World against glibc resulting in an executable that's over 400 kilobytes. 38911 basic bytes free, 400k for Hello World. Right. What are my alternatives? Yeah. So I started looking at uclibc, mm-hmm. and uclibc led me to BusyBox. And, yeah. you know, just playing around with these kind of things for fun because... I've lobotomized Pam on my Red Hat system again. I, I was on Red Hat for many years before bouncing off Nopix and winding on Ubun- winding up on Ubuntu. Yeah. I would break things like Pam. Mm-hmm. As a normal user, without even root access, making it so that you can't log in anymore. I had no idea how I broke it, but Pam was vetoing every login, so it's like, okay, build BusyBox and replace all the little executables on there so that I actually can log in and change my password and do all these things and then try to boot X and X, you know, start X gets vetoed by Pam. It's like what the heck does Pam have to do with running the GUI? But you know, just following the the tangled complications because I break everything. And so I, I was doing embedded systems for fun for a number of years. I've had this Dream ever since I got involved in the whole GNU slash Linux slash dammit naming flap that it should be possible to demonstrate here's a Linux system, it's got uclibc, it's got busybox. Mm-hmm. There's no GNU software on here. Mm-hmm. Go to Richard Stallman, is this still GNU slash Linux? Mm-hmm. Or will you admit that Linux systems exist that don't have any GNU software on them? And I'm sure he'd go, okay, well, it's still built with... GC, you know, if it was still built with glibc, he'd say, yes, you're still using some of the GNU stuff, so I've got to replace that. If, if, if you're still building with GCC, so mm-hmm. I'm, I look at Fabrice Bellard's tiny C compiler, yeah. you know, just proof of concept thing, but also because it's much smaller, it's much faster, it's much, stream, much more streamlined. In the case of uclibc, I think that something like Nopix should be using the smaller, more streamlined, simpler C library as opposed to glibc, which I'm not sure what that's optimized for. Well, what are the, I guess one of the questions we do get from folks that are, I should say, newer to embedded uh, Linux is, uh, okay, so I look at uclibc and I look at glibc and well, one's much smaller than the other. Mm-hmm. Well, there must be less there. And, and then the next question is, well, which of what is less there? Uh, maybe you could tell uh, some of the listeners what's different about those two libraries such that one can be so much smaller than the other. Um, size was a design criteria with uclibc. With glibc, they really weren't paying attention to it because Moore's Law doubles the amount of disk you have and doubles the amount of memory you have every few months. Mm-hmm. So, you know, well, why should we care about the small size? The reason you should care about the small size, in addition to bugs being per line of code, so yeah. the bigger the thing is, the more buggier it's going to be and the weird little security things you're going to have, and also just the weird little behavioral things you're going to have, uh-huh. Um in addition to that, there's something called the L1 and L2 cache. Mm-hmm. So if your program fits in cache, it's going to run faster. Yeah. If your program, the, the smaller it is and the fewer lines it is, the easier it is to do things like port it from 32-bit to 64-bit because you have fewer lines of code to review. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I keep coming back to security because, well, people have thrown money at me to do security before. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to do a security audit and you're going to read line by line by line and make sure, okay, I know what every line of code in this thing does, it's much nicer to have a 1,000-line solution than a 100,000-line solution because, well, you're less likely to miss stuff and your brain explodes much less. Yeah. So you're working on a project now. I know we talked a little bit about BusyBox, but you're working on a project now called ToyBox. Yeah. Um, after I stopped working on BusyBox, which was due to a political fallout over GPLv3 with Bruce Perens that I'd really rather not go into, but after I stopped working on that, I was always working on BusyBox for fun. Mm-hmm. I worked on BusyBox for something like three years before I ever made a dime off of my efforts on that thing. Mm-hmm. And I still do a lot of these kind of things for fun. Uh-huh. And it was an opportunity to step back and go, okay, having learned a lot from working on BusyBox and learning what you know Eric Anderson and Manuel Nova and Glenn McGrath and a whole bunch of people had put a lot of effort into these things, how would I have done it? Mm-hmm. Knowing what I know, th- what I know now, yeah. you know, if those guys could basically just throw out what they'd done and start and start over, knowing what they know now, the the history of BusyBoxes, it was it started with a bunch of utilities stitched together by the Debian maintainer for a boot disk, yeah. and then it was repurposed over the years, and you know, more and more code added to it, and although BusyBox is somewhat different from a lot of the other attempts to do this, the GNU utilities or the BSD utilities, that they had a historical implementation that was more focused on functionality. Okay. And, you know, adding more functionality with computers that were always getting more powerful than the previous generation. Mm -hmm. Whereas BusyBox was aimed at, okay, how do we make this smaller? How do we make this simpler? Mm -hmm. Um, how do we fit it on a device that's going to have a limited battery life or tiny amounts of memory? Mm-hmm. Embedded stuff isn't going to stop getting smaller anytime soon. I, I have this vision that 10 years from now, you'll be walking down a supermarket aisle and the boxes of Captain Crunch will have a display that changes every 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. How does it do that? It'll have a little watch battery down in one corner. It'll have some kind of display printed on the cardboard because people keep playing with technologies to do that kind of thing and they'll make it work eventually. Mm-hmm. And it will have a processor that costs 30 cents to produce. And it will have a tiny amount of memory. It will have a very low clock speed because the battery on this thing has to last a year. Mm-hmm. has to last however the long the cereal is going to be good to, to sit on the shelf there. Mm-hmm. And the volume is going to go through the roof. It's going to get absolutely ubiquitous when this kind of things happen. When this kind of thing happens, people have already been experimenting with disposable cell phones. Yeah. The biggest limit to this kind of thing is that the battery is both extremely expensive and not the kind of thing you want to throw away because it's you know you don't want to lithium and stuff winding up in the groundwater or whatever happens to it. Uh, cadmium certainly, the NICADs. Blech. So, but eventually they're going to they're they're going to move into disposable computing. And when that happens, the embedded stuff is going to get bigger than ever. Mm-hmm. And also, the small stuff tends to creep up. It, oh, it's, yeah. it's easy to make small stuff big. It's very easy to add features. It's very, very hard to take something that's big and complicated and decide what to cut out and throw away and then fill in the gaps that you've just left. 
You know, it, it's very difficult to turn a tank into a bicycle. It's much easier to turn a bicycle into a tank. Yeah. Well, I know that. Well, I guess that follows the the, the theme uh, with you working with with Red Hat and finding that it was much easier to start from scratch and work up than than mm-hmm. larger to pare down. So it's a scale free sort of problem, huh? Yep. And one of the really nice things about Linux is it's modular. All the pieces, you know, it, it's commodity software. It's interchangeable parts available from multiple sources. There is no component that you can't switch out for something else. I mean, you can replace GCC with TCC. You can replace glibc with uclibc. You can replace all the GNU utils with BusyBox. Mm-hmm. You can replace, uh, you can even replace the Linux kernel. Somebody ran BusyBox without the Linux kernel. They ran it on the bare hardware with a combination of uh, projects called NewLib and LibGloss. Yes. You know, that mm-hmm. you can swap out absolutely everything, and it's all modular, and it's all, there. there's, you know, the single Unix specification defining what this component should do and what the system calls should do. Mm-hmm. So you can actually focus on this component is too big, it's too complicated. <clears throat> it's, it's not necessarily because it's bad, but because... They just weren't thinking, how do I make this work on a cell phone where we have a five milliwatt budget of standby time? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you want two weeks of standby on one of those batteries when it's not in use, you have a five milliwatt budget. You know, th- this, is, this isn't the kind of thing where you can go, I, I, I don't want to have a budget that small. No, this is what you have. What can I do with that? You know, so you can actually attack it one component at a time. Mm-hmm. You can say, you know, okay, replace glibc with uclibc. Now adapt everything to make sure that it works there. And the the more you've replaced a given component, the more options there are for each component, the more standardized everything else gets because the interdependencies between the modules get weeded out and polished off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of the work I do is just, you know, okay, I'm attempting to build a whole Linux from scratch system with uclibc. Okay. I'm attempting to get a system that can rebuild itself from source under itself with BusyBox and no GNU utilities installed on the thing. That was one of, you know, that was the firmware Linux thing. That's how I got started mm-hmm. on that. Um, and half of what I was fixing was in BusyBox. And, you know, th- this is, w- when I started firmware Linux, I, I didn't really intend to do BusyBox development at all. I was just thinking, Nopix is cool. Um, I'm not 100% certain that Nopix was out then. I think it was. But, you know, bootable CDs, that kind of thing, are cool. Mm -hmm. And it would be nice if they could use UCLibc and BusyBox instead of the larger components because that gives them an extra 10 megs or whatever it is budget on that CD. Yeah. So how do I make a fully capable system using these smaller components? Well, it has to be able to rebuild itself from source under itself. So Mm -hmm. starting with Linux from scratch, rip stuff out, and that broke. The first big thing that really broke on me was said. I didn't know anything about said. You know, I, I, I knew what it was. I knew it was there. And I also knew that it had the ugliest user interface of anything, any, well, it, it's up there. But, you know, the, the, uh, the configure stage of binutils just totally died when it hit said. And it, I think it segfaulted the sucker and it just got completely wrong results. Mm-hmm. So I had to figure out what it was supposed to do mm-hmm. and then read through the BusyBox code for said to figure out how to make it do that. Yeah. And I, I hugely rewrote the sed that was in there, and then mm-hmm. I did the same thing with other utilities like sort and things. And I eventually sort of became BusyBox maintainer by accident. Mm-hmm. Just because I was, you know, when Eric... Uh, 
Eric Anderson was the maintainer of uh, BusyBox and UC Libc, and, mm-hmm. and he's still maintainer of a project called BuildRoot. Mm-hmm. And in 1999, he worked for Linio, and he was one of the big people who was really focusing on putting Linux into embedded stuff really before most other people paid any attention to it. Right. And he found these old abandoned projects that had been these interesting sidelines people had done but had largely dropped because there wasn't any use for them. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, BusyBox had been idle for two years. Um, it had been a utility for the Debian boot disk that uh, Red Hat has an equivalent called Nash yes. for its boot disk that has, you know, it's, it's a shell with mount built into it and a couple other things that were needed. Well, uh, BusyBox was, was the equivalent for the Debian utility, and nothing had been done on it in two years, and he, here he was going, I can use this in my little embedded thingy, you know, just as I started from the boot, boot floppy mm-hmm. how-to learning how to build up things. Uh, Eric Anderson was a Debian developer, used this utility, and he also grabbed an abandoned project called UC Libc and put seven years of his life into making them these big projects. You know, he gave them a website, he gave them a mailing list, he, mm-hmm. he did lots and lots of development. And eventually what happened is they got so big that he didn't have time to do them all anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, BusyBox had a 1.0 release, at which point Eric went, okay, I can afford to spend some time on other things because BusyBox is now at 1.0. It doesn't need my day-to-day involvement. So the project stagnated for five months. And um, what had happened is UC Libc, his, his other main project at the time, a few months earlier, it had forked off another project called BuildRoot. Yes. BuildRoot was originally just a way of building a tool chain mm-hmm. for UC Libc. They mm-hmm. used to have a wrapper script that would you it would intercept attempts to run GCC and rewrite the GCC command line so it did you it so it links stuff against UC Libc instead yes. of against GCC. This turns out to be kind of hard because the GCC path logic is pathologically broken, um, but also because some of the GCC libraries, the, the worst offender is one called libgcc underscore s, mm-hmm. it's linked against glibc. Libgcc s has weird little things like if you do 64-bit integer division on a 32-bit platform, well, there's no assembly for that. It has to call a function. Yes. That function lives in this library. Mm-hmm. So if you do various things just with your code, it'll it'll hallucinate a call to this library because it yes. needs some functions out of there. But this library is linked against this, the C library. Ah. So if you do one of these divisions or various other you know little gotchas in your code, mm-hmm. it suddenly leaks a reference to libc6, to glibc. Yeah. And if you're trying to link against UC libc and suddenly your program is linked against both libraries, you know, the worst of both worlds, um, the the list was getting an awful lot of emails about, you know, how did this reference to the, you know, to glibc come up and how do I avoid it? Mm-hmm. And when they really looked into the problem, they went, the only way to fix this is to rebuild GCC from source so that it leaks a reference to the right library. Yes. One, one thing that embedded developers tend to do fairly early on is they'll start fighting GCC. You, you, you just learn that you know, it's your mortal enemy and you, know, you, you, you learn how to wrestle it to the ground and then try to keep your distance from it. Mm-hmm. You know, Cross-compiler, tool chains, all that kind of stuff. Um, and this was a case where they had to rebuild GCC from source code, which is not trivial to do. 
um, you know, its path logic is so broken that you essentially have to apply patches to it to, oh, yeah. to control what directories it's looking in. And so they made a make file that would build, and it's not just one package. You have to build your C library for it to link against. You have to build bin utils. You have to build GCC, and you have to supply it with kernel headers so that your C library knows what API to call the kernel with. Yes. So you need these four packages to build what's called a tool chain. Yeah, mo- that, you know, it's interesting because most of the people you know, I talk to that are maybe getting newly involved in Linux are like, well, why do I even need to, you know, why does my compiler need to know a thing about my kernel? And It's not that your compiler does, it's that your C library does. Exactly. The, the problem is that most users in their head have combined GCC and glibc as, as one unit. Well, GCC and binutils essentially are one unit. They're they're separate because they're maintained by slightly different groups of people. Mm-hmm. But that division is somewhat arbitrary. The C library, however, is that's one of the things where it's modular and you can replace it with a different implementation. But in order to even build hello world, you know, all the standard C calls in all your standard include files, you know, mm-hmm. standard IO and stuff, that's all in a shared library and in order for your tool chain to, in, in order for your compiler to really do anything useful, mm-hmm. you know, in order to make an executable and not just a .o file, mm-hmm. it needs libc. Yes, it needs this, you know, the one shared library to rule them all. Mm-hmm. And since building this was non-trivial, what Eric did is he started a, he he made a make file that would build it. Mm-hmm. It would build a tool chain, and then they added to test that the toolchain was working because it's very hard to do and it's very easy to make a broken toolchain that's looking for headers in the wrong directory or or using the glibc include files and then trying to link against uclibc and mm-hmm. producing an incorrect executable with the wrong offsets and structures and stuff like that. Um, or searching the wrong library path. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, yes, we linked against uclibc, but then we couldn't find a version of zlib, the... the, the uh, the gzip compression library that was linked against uclibc, so we fell back to the normal search path and grabbed the one that's linked against glibc, and hey, another reference to glibc got mm-hmm. sucked in. It's like, mm. So, you know, you've got to make sure not only that it's looking in the right path, but that it's not looking in the wrong ones. Okay. So you get the right errors rather than getting incorrect things, you know, when, when something's missing. And, you know, so all this complexity, in order to test it, in order to test that the toolchain was building properly, they added the ability to build some simple things like BusyBox against it to create a root file system you could change root into. Uh-huh. Well, as uclibc got more and more capable and more and more packages started working, in order to easily regression test things, you know, when, when the question comes up, does package such and such work with uclibc, the answer became, well, add a make invocation to build root to build it, Mm-hmm. and see if it works. And as more and more things got added to build root, it very quickly, in a matter of months, turned into a distribution generator. You know, kind of yes. kind of like what Gentoo is now, but I think this may actually... I don't remember if this predated Gentoo or not. It probably didn't, but Gentoo wasn't doing anything with uclibc at the time. Mm-hmm. And this was aimed a little differently. So it, it turned into a Linux distribution, or a Linux distribution generator. And became a big project of its own. And Eric Anderson essentially just, he didn't have time to run three projects. So after BusyBox had been essentially abandoned for a few months, I started collecting some bug fixes 
and you know poking at him. He, he'd already browbeat me into getting CVS access. And I, I essentially said, okay, I'm going to put out a 1.01 release, just a bug fix release. Yeah. And I did that, and I wound up putting out a 1.02 release. And, you know, the, the numbering was a little weird, but he called the first release 1.00, not 1.0.0. So, eh, stuck with that until 1.1. Mm-hmm. 1.1 came out, we went to three levels. Um, but essentially, you know, I, I put out a, I think I put out a pre-release first, and then I put out 1.01. I don't quite remember at this point, it's been long enough. But... It got to the point where I, I wasn't the maintainer. I was just reviewing patches that had been sent to the list, applying other people's patches to the tree, mm-hmm. and I was the one who put out the releases. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't maintainer. And okay. eventually Eric just went, you know, you're maintainer. Yeah. And you know, so I, I was sort of numb. I, I was unofficially maintainer almost as long as I was officially maintainer. Yeah. And, you know, I, I never meant to become maintainer of the thing. I was just playing with this firmware Linux thing going, hey, I want to do a full-blown system based on BusyBox and UCLibc, and both of them need to be extended. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to make darn sure that I didn't sacrifice what had attracted me to them in the first place. I want to add the capabilities, but I want to make sure that it's all, anything that adds size can be configured out so it can become as small as the original ones could, because, I mean, with, with glibc, linking hello world, not even uh, statically linking hello world, mm-hmm. 400K, that's ridiculous. Yeah. It doesn't even matter if you're using printf. You can use putS, and it's still 400K. <laughs> it just, and, and the reason is there's all this stuff that you can't configure out. It yeah. used to be bigger. You know, they've actually cleaned it up a little since then. One of the big things that uh, that drove me towards BusyBox is I made the mistake of actually reading some of the code, the source code of the GNU utilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, CAT was 833 lines of C code to implement CAT. Wow. How do you do that? It's not, it's, it's doing very little. Yeah. And it's most of a thousand lines. Again, I, I've used that as an example often enough that the relevant people have gone through and trimmed it down a little, but it's still got all sorts of weird options doing things that it really doesn't need to and huge chunks of code that if def out and just reading through that to understand what it does. I want to understand what everything is doing because I'll break it. Mm-hmm. You know, whether I understand it or not, I'm still going to break it. If I understand it, I can fix it. Mm-hmm. If I don't understand it, you know, I it broke on the surface and I've got to dig down through five layers to see where it broke. You know, things like things like KDE break on me all the time, and mm-hmm. it's just, great, restart conquer, restart Kmail, because I have no idea how to do that. And it's, I, I, I keep meaning to poke at Gen 2 just so that I can rebuild one of these suckers from source mm-hmm. and drop in a version that I've stuck in a few printfs in or something just so that I see, where did it break if I can reproduce that one? You know, the, the the sucky ones are always, ah, it broke, but it worked fine the second time I tried. <laughs> I can't reproduce the problem, but I know it's there. Yeah. I don't know what I did. You know, and those are the ones that are going to bite you again in two weeks. Yeah. It's like, eh. We fix as much as we can. Yeah, I understand. It was really great talking to you. Oh, thank Glad you. Glad to have you in. And uh, 
I th- we just about wrapped up for our time. And we, we try to go to uh, keep it around a half an hour. And I know we're getting away from the uh, marketing guy here is putting that the hand across the neck. And I think that means stop. Wow. So, again, it was great having you in. Uh, it was nice talking uh, to you. And I think um, I know we're looking forward to some other guest interviews that we have as well. So if you have a chance, you want to have send us some feedback, you can uh, get in touch with us at uh, podcast.timesus.com. Uh, or I know at the bottom of the of the podcast uh, page, there's a place where you can leave questions or comments, and you're more than welcome to do that. I, I know we, we have a lot of users tend to favor the, the email, though. Uh, but any way that uh, you'd like to uh, send us a question or comment, uh, feel free to do so. Again, thanks a lot, Rob. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Timesys. Check out our new site to get free code, discuss, and learn about embedded Linux development. Go to timesys.com today.